Good morning everyone, how are you guys doing? What's going on? Welcome to episode 28 of Merchants of Novigrad, a podcast where we discuss everything Gwent. Today with me, showing off some freshly acquired tan, my brother from another mother, Hesser Tavern. And as you guys can see, uh, once again we have a very special guest, one of the uh, newest additions to the Gwent team, and definitely the most fabulous one, Jean Okie. How are you guys doing? What's going on? Hey! Hey man. I hope that pronunciation wasn't that awful. I didn't text, so I guess it was good. <laughs> Before we get into it, chat, as always, you can uh, you can ask questions. Hesser uh, has been charged with the task of collecting the more interesting ones. Uh, also, if you'd like to stay in touch off-stream, you can follow us on Twitter at Novgrad Podcast. And as always, if you are short on time, don't fret. This episode is going to be uploaded on YouTube, Spotify, and a number of other platforms either later today or tomorrow and with that being said what have been up to and let's start with jean how are things how are you doing and what's that pow what is that pow behind you (laughs) you knew i was going to ask ah i'm doing good and that weird thing behind me is stuff piled up in this room that's sometimes used for storage (laughs) (laughs) Eh, you do what you can Absolutely. We, we actually see a very similar landscape behind Hesser, so... Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a common thing to do right now. The, I'm definitely more interested in your couch and where you acquired it, Hesser. Because that <laughs> well, couch I, looks sure. very, very familiar. <laughs> I think a lot of people are very familiar with, with the couch behind me, but hopefully... Uh, well, well, maybe let's, let's not start that topic. I think that you can find this couch on certain websites that most of people know so you know oh absolutely absolutely but moving uh, moving on to uh the gwen territory because this is what this podcast is about uh you know with the second expansion uh of this set just around the corner how are things john because i know that Molygian uh said he's going to take a break from social media so you are now in charge of answering all the community questions on twitter how does that feel I mean, it's fun. It's fun to see the kind of interrogations uh, players have about the upcoming cards and the kind of super weird and corner case stuff that they came that they came up with. Um, I think I'm, I think I'm doing good, and yeah, I'm quite excited about the way Draw Two is going to be received. Oh, absolutely. I think I think people are going to love these cards. We've only seen three factions so far, or like two and a half factions so far. And I have to say the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, but, you know, you said that this room is used for storage. So I actually want to uh, delve into like, the more personal part. Um, mm-hmm. Because you joined CDPR fairly recently, like less than a year ago. Yes, that was in mid-October. Yeah, so how's, how's your working experience been so far? Because, you know, this is a very difficult situation, I would say. Uh, it's been very good. So, uh, I moved to Poland um, right when I started. Um, and I basically stayed home <laughs> from, so working from home in Poland. Uh, but um, the the team I joined is uh, very 
uh, welcoming and heartwarming. And so uh, even though I was alone at home, uh, working with them every day, I wouldn't get lonely, which is great. <laughs> and uh, I'm actually back in France for the summer, hence the storage room. <laughs> yeah, I actually wanted to ask if that's a normal thing, because I think Orion, when he appears on the dev developer mm -hmm. streams, uh, like he, uh, it, it looks like his room in Germany. So I'm also wondering if he's back from Poland for a while. Maybe, oh, maybe uh... you, you didn't know. I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, I, I just wanted to know if it's a common thing for you know CDPR employees to to go back to their uh, country of origin for like time the time being because of the lockdown. Uh, I mean, we don't really have a lockdown anymore. Like, not that's not a strict one, uh, but the, still, it's kind of weird. Most of the CDPR employees are Polish, right? So they don't really like it's home. <laughs> um, I I wouldn't be able to tell. I felt like make is a bit specific where it was like. Uh, I, I wanted to get back for a few weeks to see families and friends. Yeah, understandable. So you actually answered our next question a little bit. Oh. Yeah, actually, but we have another one as well, because, you know, moving to Poland means probably uh, jumping into the culture a bit. And, well, obviously not in the lockdown situation, but are you maybe, you know, adapting somehow, learning the language or, you know, interacting with uh, with Polish society in some way? So interacting, not that much, I say. But I, I have actually Polish lessons uh, every day, one hour. Uh, no, not every day, otherwise I'd become good at it. No, it's every week. <laughs> uh, only one hour. Uh, I need to work more, <laughs> otherwise I'm not going to learn the language. But uh, it's an interesting language. And surprisingly, not that hard to pronounce for a French speaker. Oh yeah, we actually share some sounds, right? So it's, it can be, can be a bit easy for you. Definitely easier than, for example, for Ryan, who's <laughs> from Germany. That's probably harder for him. <laughs> Also, Ryan is probably not going to have the easiest time of his life, you know, pronouncing Polish with a heavy German accent. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's all I have a good accent, which is kind of a problem, because when you exchange the, you know, the banal um, politeness words uh, when going to the store and whatnot, people start to assume that I am Polish. <laughs> uh, and, like, very quickly, I'm completely lost. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of feel like I, I heard that story somewhere on YouTube, like a, a very similar story. Like somebody was learning a language and surprisingly had a very decent accent. So people assumed he was, I think it was an English YouTuber who spent the first couple of years of his life in France. Oh, okay. I am thinking about the exact same person. Yeah, and then he, and then he started making, uh, um, you know, content in French or like go, going to France. And he remembered, like, he had the accent from his, er like, the early years, like, he knew how to pronounce things. But his grammar and vocabulary was really poor, so people just assume he speaks French perfectly, but he didn't. So they, they probably just thought he's an idiot. Paul <laughs> no, Taylor, I remembered. Paul Taylor. Yeah, he's like a comedian, isn't he? Yeah, uh, he is pretty good, <laughs> really funny. <laughs> uh, speaking of languages, Hesser, you recently made the move on Twitch. You are no longer part of the English-speaking community now. It's all about them Russians. So, uh, what prompted you to make that move, and uh, and how are you perceived by the Russian section? 
Well, you know, that is, uh, I would say, sort of a bittersweet experience right now because I had to leave some of my, uh, you know, English-speaking followers, basically, and they are they are jumping into the chat and we are we are conversating, we are talking, but they quickly realize that it's not an English-speaking content anymore and it's more into Russian, right? So I'm trying to keep it still English-Russian, right? Mixed and Polish sometimes as well, but... But it's hard. It's hard, right? So the transition, the transition is real, uh, I could say. And what prompted me to move? I think that mainly the community, because the community is really welcoming, and I have a really good uh, relationship with that community. I, I know a lot of people, a lot of streamers there, and they are jumping into my chat. We are we are playing together, and and, and that's great, right? I mean, and it's maybe a bit less competitive than the English scene because you see a lot of. You see a lot of people wanting to be among the English-speaking uh, content creators, right? Because basically, uh, you have more followers, more people coming, and and you know, people want to be there. But but I like the Russian community, and I think for now I'm gonna stay there. We'll see how it goes later on. I'm still gonna you know uh, interact with the English-speaking followers, but uh, I can assume that they are gonna they are gonna leave at some point. But you know. These are the sacrifices that you have to make, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, I actually have a follow-up question because it's it's something that intrigues me. Because you speak Russian at home with your wife, right? Yeah. How much of a Polish accent do you have? Like, when you are streaming Russian, do Russians automatically know you are Polish or you are not Russian? Well, this is actually the thing that, that you mentioned before as well. I remember the first time that I went to Russia and... I had a pretty decent accent and I was like, you know, asking some simple questions at the shop and people were, oh, so you're, you're Russian, you know, and started to, you know, conversating with me. And I was like standing there like an idiot and, you know, just listening and nodding and that's it. And, but nowadays, yeah, yeah, I, I, my vocabulary grew, obviously, you know, expanded. So, so it's, it's way better and the accent uh, stayed. So, so I think it's, it's pretty decent. I think it's pretty decent. People usually don't get that I'm not a Russian speaker. They can take me for an Ukrainian, Belarusian, whatever, but definitely not a Polish guy. Because there, is, you know, there are some certain things that Polish people do when they speak Russian, and, and I just don't do it. Because <laughs> I was learning Russian at the university, so we had all this phonetics and stuff like that, you know, pronunciation. So I think it's pretty all right. <laughs> but there's one thing all communities, whether it's, whether it's the English-speaking community or Russian-speaking community, are waiting for, and that's new Gwent content. So let's delve into the next segment of this show, which is what's happening in Gwent. And there is a lot of things happening. So to start, right off the bat, uh, new content. And uh, we are getting some quite soon. And the first question I would like to ask you, Jean, is, you know, as usual, new content means certain archetypes are going to get strengthened or maybe even created from the scratch. How do you decide which archetypes that going to be? Um, uh, we brainstorm. <laughs> um, I think usually it's a matter of... There's so many different ways we can go with this. Sometimes it comes from um, um, a desire to deepen certain existing archetypes, like, oh, I find this really interesting and um, I'd like to see it be a full-pledged deck, I'd like to see it uh, be more developed. And uh, sometimes it's about 
new mechanic and it's like oh you know what that would fit that archetype or like that tribe really well um there's a there can be a lot of different approach and but but, but funnily enough i feel like quite often uh we quite easily um settle on the same answers on hey this time it's gonna be this yes sir oh yeah uh well <laughs> <laughs> sorry i was just, paying, just I was paying attention on to the, the chat podcast. again <laughs> sorry guys well, um, yeah, we have a question about the reward cards as well, um, because usually um, the new cards are rated based on their points per provision, right? How efficient they will be, for example, in certain decks, in certain archetypes. And uh, could you tell us a bit more about what is the current point per provision curve across rarity tiers right now, and how do you want to develop it in the future? Uh, this, <laughs> this is a very long answer. Um... <laughs> So right now, the way I perceive the curve is that there's a very sharp increase on the first few provisions. I think like there was like this very interesting post on Reddit uh, a few days ago about uh, the provision curves of the points to provision curves of um, a few meta decks. And like it has to be taken with a grain of salt because of course these are specific meta decks and like a f only a few ones and uh, they weren't taking into account uh, tutor cards um but we could very easily see that uh, the four provisions are around six seven um the five provision are around uh, eight uh, seven to eight and uh, six immediately goes up to something like um, nine, ten. And then it settles on a bit more, and it's uh, it's less sharp. And um, I think we we reach. Uh, I think it's a good spot at the moment because uh, very naturally, um, higher provision card, which means higher points. Uh, is quite advantageous in Gwent because it allows you to suddenly create a big gap in, in, in terms of points. So the more points on a card, uh, the the higher the value. Like, um, ah, God, I, I feel really dumb about, uh, about this that I'm saying, but like, it makes sense in my head, but it's hard to, to make it come out properly. Um, just like there's a lot of value to a card that's able to drop, uh, let's say, 12 points or or 15. So uh, higher provision cards uh, don't necessarily need to have as good of a, of a points to provision ratio as lower provision cards, which are going to drop uh, less points uh, when played. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, actually. And, uh, you know, it's... It's obvious that the bronzes, to make bronzes more relevant, you need to give them like probably a higher curve, right? To make it easier to achieve rather than the goals who, which, you know, require maybe something else to do to, to get those points. And I think there was like the really huge outrage at the beginning where people were shouting power creep and so on, you know, when you started creating uh, this higher curve for the bronzes. 
but right now it really makes sense and i think it it's it's getting um to the spot to, the, to that sweet spot that that you mentioned as well and yeah we had a one question from the chat as well concerning that uh, concerning the car design i think we can um ask it right now uh when you design cards do you try to make every card competitive or sometimes the purpose of card is just to be fun that's a good one we try to have every card have a purpose um so quite often that purpose is uh we want the card to be competitive otherwise it's not going to see play which means it's not going to have a purpose but there exist certain types of design which are fun and so these cards get played regardless of if they are competitive as long as like they're decent enough let's say um and so we are also fine with these doing these kinds of design because we know that these cards will see uh, a certain type of play i kind of want to come back to what you were saying about uh power creep because i think it's a really interesting topic <laughs> yeah uh because like power creep has, has this very negative uh connotation to it right but yeah. uh i feel like in a lot of games there can be such a thing as like a power creep that's healthy for the game um and uh I mean, Gwent is one of such examples, but uh, you can think about other card games, for instance, where you compare the base games to what the newer expansions are, and you realize that, well, sure, the newer expansions are stronger than the base game, but also they are more interesting because the base game is, well, basic. And sometimes uh, in the process of a game maturing, uh, that power creep allows the game to uh, sit in a more interesting space. And I think that's kind of what happened with that, uh, you know, the re-upping of uh, the power provision cost of uh, bronze cards in Gwent. Yeah, I actually would like to bind the, the these last three topics into one question. Because when it comes to rework content, how often do you feel like Okay, the only thing the card needs to be relevant is, you know, a redu red reduction in provisions. For example, to go from 5 to 4 mm. or 6 to 5 or, or just a few points on top. And how often do you feel like, okay, you know what? This card that we designed a couple of years ago is just not going to make it, you know, in this state of the game. Mm. Because the game has gotten more complex and quite often people are complaining. New content, you know, new goals, very powerful you don't really want to draw into your bronzes at a later stage of the game. So how, how would, you like to, would, would you like to, you know, minimize that feeling of, oh, I missed my goals? I know it's um, a very chaotic question. Yeah, um, so on, on the latest, on the la late part of the question, it, it's always kind of something that, uh, that's in the back of our mind. And uh, on Way of the Witcher, we can experiment it, uh, with the adrenaline mechanic on this. Like, you know, bronze cards that get stronger when they're played late into the round. And most more often than not, late into the round means in round three. Um, so it, it's something that we're thinking of and experimenting with, that's, that, that's for sure. Um, but also, like, it's, it's not necessarily um ah how can i explain this <laughs> um like 
at its core, Gwent is a game about um, carryover in the sense of what the kind, which cards you decide to not play in early rounds and to keep into later ones. Mm. And so, quite naturally, you want your more uh, expensive and powerful cards to to be able to play them in the late round. So it's. It's something that we want to address, but also it's kind of in the nature of Gwent uh, for it to be played that way. Um, I forgot what, the, what was the first part of the question. The first part of the question is how often do you feel like uh, you just need to adjust the provisions or power oh, yeah. to make a car relevant, or, or how often do you really feel like, okay, we just need to rework it because the effect is not good enough mm -hmm. in the current state of the game? That's very case by case. Um, I think at the moment we kind of like to avoid uh, reworking too many cards because um, it confuses people, right? Like suddenly the effects changes, you have to relearn how the card works, and uh, touching uh, variables, power, provision uh, is less of an abrasive change, I'd say. Um, but sometimes we realize that it's not enough, that like the what we want to achieve with that card is just not going to work out by only touching these values. And that's when rework comes on the table. Um, but, but also, I feel like you can have a lot of effects just touching uh, something like provision. One of the, one of my most favorite change was that change that we made to Maxi when we dropped her from six six to six five, so five provision. And I remember that some of the reaction to the patches at the time were like, Maxi is never going to be relevant. And what we saw was Maxi starting to be picked up in the most competitive decks as a reliable tool. And I really loved that, like, um, we were kind of experimenting with it. It's like, oh, yeah, but like, we feel like the card is not that bad, but um, are you willing to include such a card in your deck? You're not willing to do it at six provision, but maybe, just maybe you are at five. And... I'm really happy how like such a small change turned out and, and had such an, an impact on the meta. Yeah, especially in this case, because as you said, people had the feeling like, ah, this card is never going to be played anyway. But sometimes it's very obvious that that one provision change is completely going to skyrocket the play rate of that card. For, for example, Artfi and Tortoise, right? Uh, it went from five provisions to four, and that card is everywhere now. You have the you have the new guard mid range deck. You have all kinds of hyper thing cloggers, ball decks. Like almost like mill, like almost everyone is playing that card because if you are thinking about okay, I need I need a four four provision card. What am I gonna play? Okay, this is seven for four, easy. But does it does it actually happen that you have to walk back on a change? Because this is actually the topic of of the next question. But first, I would like to know if if it happens a lot. Where you, where you change something and you, there is a vision behind it and then you think like, you know, afterwards, after a couple of months, maybe a year, you know what, guys, we should revert. Um, I, I, I think we tend to not necessarily uh, um, 
like it's 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 rare that we feel like the only thing to do is to just reverse um more often than not uh, uh we will change the card like we we buffed it and then we'll nerf it but in another way i felt like but uh, more generally uh i feel like the the, like this is a job about being wrong. Like, I think to be a good designer, you have to, in, in on the multiplayer game, you have to accept that you you are going to be wrong and you're going to be wrong all the time, um, because a player will surprise you. A player will find specific ways to play the game, and which and you cannot anticipate. Like you're, you're five people or ten people working uh, on something that uh, hundreds of thousands of players are are are, are going to touch. Um, of course, you cannot uh, see everything coming, so I think it's very important to accept that hey, that did not turn out how uh, we expected, and uh, we we now we need to react to the current situation. Um, I ask this sort of, sort of you know prelude question because there is there is something I've I've always wanted to ask about, and and that's the, you know the revert on on the approach to traps in this game. Because now we are delving into specific archetypes and specific mechanics. I remember, I think that was patch 5.1. Uh, you know, there was a developer stream and it was announced, okay, that I ambush as a leader ability was going to be reworked and, and traps effectively went from being an archetype to a package supposed to com complement other archetypes. And then, not too long ago, you guys kind of reverted that change. So, so could you actually explain why, in this specific case, that 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 you know reverted change was made? Right. So there's two things. The like the first one is the actual question, and the second one is discussing revert because I I do not necessarily agree that we reverted the situation on traps. Um, but to come back to the original question, uh, game evolves, <laughs> and uh, and like new people get included in the team. In, me, for instance, but um, also Malaysian Freedom is not a good example. So, uh, the the we evolve in the way we we design stuff in the philosophy that we have. Uh, the game evolves, so you have to react to new things, and um, people people change. So uh, I think it's less of a revert and, and more of an evolution. In the state of mind, and then, and and so the second part of it is, uh, I think, I think we still uh, consider traps to be um, a package rather than not rather than an archetype, uh, a full-fledged one at least. And prior to us touching us uh, touch, touching it with the um, the, the new leader cards. Uh, traps weren't really existent. Um, like the, the cards had been, um, I guess, Warcraft. In in any case, they weren't relevant and uh, really weren't. You you would just gloss over them, the deck builder. So. Um, and our goal with these leader cards were to um, support very specific uh, archetypes in, the, in different factions 
uh, by giving them one card that would have the potential to kind of tie um, uh, things together. And so, yeah, for Square Tall, uh, Traps was one of such archetypes which existed, but wasn't a thing at, at, at that moment. And uh, like when it's when it's so a lot of plays, it, it was still incorporated in other existing uh, skeletal things, such as no units or just in general control skeletic or even Maddock. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't really see it as a revert and more like an evolution of the game. Speaking of that evolution, hi sir. Yeah, actually, um, you know, with the with the cards like Sabertooth Tiger, for example, and the rework Hattori, we can see that there is like effective increase in the no unit cap. Mm -hmm. And we know that non-interactive decks and no unit decks were a nightmare before. And a lot of people were complaining about those, for example, the artifact uh, decks at the like after the homecoming, right? Sometime after the homecoming or uh, the infamous Sihil, oh, for instance. And aren't you afraid that those non-interactive decks will be pushed more further into viability in the future? Um, so with the current tool that they have, uh, I, I, I don't think so. I think they already pushed it as much as they could. <laughs> um, but uh, speaking about the future, yeah, uh, it, it's an archetype that uh, we always kind of keep in the back of our mind when we design stuff, especially for Scoyotel. Um, because, uh, like, it, it's at the moment, it's, it's, in, it's not in a problematic state, but uh, it, it could be, right? And, and as you said, uh, I, I quite often hear my coworkers tell me about uh, old Seahill and old, um, I don't even remember the name of these cards, but you know, the spears and the shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we always kind of try to consider it uh, when, when we design cards for, for this faction. Yeah, but yeah, oh, I guess. Yeah, go, yeah, go, go on. on. <laughs> <laughs> nice communication right there. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is that it kind of seemed funny when it comes to timing because, you know, you effectively removed almost every single way to interact with artifacts because of scenarios, right? Because it felt pretty bad if you played a scenario and, and, you know, a random four or five provision card just removed it from the board. And then you, you know, buffed traps, reintroduced Eldane, reworked Hattori, and I was like, okay, so now we basically have no single way of interacting with those ar ar artifacts. Like, there's nothing you can do about them. So in my, in my mind, it just felt like the timing felt funny. Um... To me, it's completely different timelines because the removal of uh, artifact removal was prior to me entering um, the the company, whereas us working on traps was like was it March? It, it was like six months after I, I entered it. So to me, it's such a long timeline. Um, but. I mean, I think that even prior to us removing these ways to remove artifacts, so like Bomb Ever is the main offender, right? Um, I wouldn't say... 
I, I wouldn't say it was a, a good way to interact with artifact. The problem with Bond Eva is that it was a hate card. You were not including it because it fitted the game plan and whatnot. You were including it because you knew that someone was going to play a scenario and you, you were going to get a lot of points through it. And, uh, and so if you look at the way, some of the ways uh, traps um, have been played, I, like I know that some people were playing Elf Trap with like, with, like the scenario. Uh, even, in, in, even if Bomb Eaver was still a thing, you would be dropping it on the scenario and probably not on the traps themselves. And also, just in general, a lot of people would not be running Bomb Eaver. Um, so you'd still be left with not necessarily a way to directly interact with the traps. Did you, did, did you just call Bomb Eaver a hate card? Yeah, did you... Yeah, I've, I've, never, I've, never, heard, I've never heard that term before. People, people are usually more diplomatic and they call it a tech card. But I think hate card is much more descriptive. <laughs> So hate card is a term that comes from magic, I think. Um, it's it's a type of design where it's you know type of cards that's targeted to uh, ruin the day, ruin the day of someone in particular. So um, what magic players would do is they'd have you know their side deck, uh, which like between games they were able to swap decks, uh, swap cards with their main decks. And they have cards such as um, destroy all green cards. Um, like this card is not going to be useful to you if you play against any other types of player, but against someone that plays green, it's super strong. Um, and so these kinds of zero to one hundred cards uh, were called hate cards. Mm. They're a, a kind of tech cards. Yeah, sure. I, I, um, I like the term much better. Hate card. From now on, I'm gonna call Geralt Eir the hate card, like the ultimate hate card, because its deploy ability is effectively do nothing or win the game. Uh, it, it, it's yeah, it's sometimes it, it definitely feels like a hate card. Uh, I feel like it has, it's broad enough that it's kind of techy, but yeah, in certain matchups, it's it's for sure is one. But uh, going back to our question list and, and caps, because you know you said okay, we, we know that we are kind of pushing the cap on no unit cards, but we we still keep that in mind. We know that how you know you know Seahill could still could be a thing in the future, so things are not gonna get too crazy uh, uh, at any 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 given point. But speaking of caps, uh, you know Syndicate has another cap, and it, and that's the coin cap, right? Like you can store up to nine coins. And then, quite recently, you added, you know, which you added which finder the game, which effectively gives you three additional coins that you know your opponent can't really interact with. Aren't aren't you worried that this change to add more coins uh, will kind of you know upset the balance of the overall coin system in Syndicate? Because now they kind of went from nine to twelve. Uh... <laughs> The easy answer is to say, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I guess I'm expected to say a bit more than this, right? <laughs> um, okay, so first thing I kind of want to bounce back the question to you. It's like, uh, do you feel like it is, at the moment, like, as is, do you feel like this finder is um, completely ruining the balance of syndicate interactivity? 
I think that Witchfinder is not really being played right now, simply because Syndicate has so many good, better cards at the moment. Like, Syndicate... This is gonna be a question later on, but Syndicate is one of the two auto-include factions right now. Like, there's so many great cards that you want to play in your Syndicate deck that there is not really that much room for her left. So, like, imagine if it was, right? Uh... Let's imagine it got um, uh, some buff that made it very relevant, kind of like what happened to Worsen and Professor. Oh yeah, then uh, those three additional coins that you can use with the drill or, or, or let's say, you know, Freak Show, yeah, that would be quite upsetting. Hmm. Okay, I mean, yeah, in the line for Cascade decks, I, I, I guess I can kind of see it, but... It's one hit, right? That's still annoying, yeah, for sure. Yeah, big, big, you know, it kind of comes down not to coins per se, but how many good options are there to utilize coins? Because quite often people will discuss Tunnel Draw and similar cards uh, in the light of, okay, it drops on the board and it hits all, like, it basically wipes everything you played before that point. And then the question is, do you really want to counter it? Like, do you want to remove it or lock it? It already dealt a bazillion points of damage. So, so, so you know, adding like, three additional coins to, uh, to, to, to that kind of feels bad. Um, yeah, I see the point, I see the point. But I guess to come back to the more um, broad question, um, I think, especially in card games, I, I feel like... You know that line from probably the Magic rulebook or the Yu-Gi-Oh rulebook about how uh, if a card breaks the rules uh, that are written in the rulebook, uh, you should be following the card and not the rulebook. Like the, the card has priority over the rules of the game. Um, I felt like that's very important. Like, like um, it's fine to break rules and uh, kind of go into uncharted territories uh what matters is how much you do it like to uh, be careful about the proportions right um in the case of which finder like of course if we start printing this kind of effect on every card uh we might have a problem but um we the, the what we wanted to do was have you think about coins in in a slightly different way and have new kinds of interactions that are unlocked um by by uh, accessing coins that way and um and like the, it's not an hegemony right because uh, you you still kind of have to click these coins if you want to be able to carry them over uh, in the next round. So sure, you can increase your bank size, but also uh, you have to be mindful about it. Um, so, like, we, we, we have to be careful, right? But uh, I feel like going a bit over the line is very important uh, to find new design space and, uh, yeah, have the game feel fresh. Yeah, as yeah. as an experiment, it definitely looks really good, and yeah. I think you know it still requires a lot of skill to utilize those coins uh, efficiently. 
and and it's still 12 provision right for seven rough power and the bounty right so yeah like, makes I, sense i overall feel like syndicate is just such a difficult faction to balance because i don't know how it looks from your perspective john because you are the designer but from from our perspective as players syndicate it's always either complete garbage, nobody plays it, nobody even looks at it, or it's so dominant, it's like people just ban it from tournaments. I, th this is a quote from Spiro, right? Spiro said that in an official tournament, you could choose line pockets or, or, or jackpot, and you could put like, you know, random cards in it like that, boom, 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 you know, random cards, like no synergies whatsoever. And players would still ban it because they wouldn't even look at it because they knew what was, what, what's supposed to be in there. This is this is the position of Syndicate right now, but you know, a, a couple of months ago, nobody played it. Mm, um, so I mean, it, it's hard for me because I, I don't know that much about the history uh, of uh, prior to me working directly on Gwent. Well, I've always known Syndicate as like a faction that had, had fallen out of flavor. Um, prior to Way of the Witcher dropping, because Congregate was uh, l losing ground. And then after Way of the Witcher, it really wasn't that relevant. And then we introduced uh, the leader card, and yeah, it was relevant. <laughs> um, and like, I feel that what is happening is, uh, for so long, the factions wasn't on the radar of players. And so a lot of changes that we made all the time suddenly became relevant all at the same time. And um, you know, we don't want to ruin the party too fast. Like, of course, things have to stay balanced, but um, we felt like Syndicate being relevant is is also something that's kind of fun, right? Um, it, it's a faction that's really interesting to play, and and that feels very unique. So yeah, like, and to be fair, I think it could happen anywhere. Um, I, I'm told ever since I've been in the company, uh, Skellige has been really strong, really dominant. I'm told that prior to Master Mirror, I think, I might say something stupid there, but, but that it wasn't at all. And uh, recently, with, with the drop of the, um, with, with drop on, um, the, the face of Skellige is finally changing from this warrior deck that, well, kept evolving, right? Uh, that took many different iterations. But uh, suddenly we have uh, it's falling out a bit of flavor, and and we have something different uh, with flurry. Um, so I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like we we can um, that syndicate is not condemned to be a zero to a zero or one faction. Um, it just take works. I would say that yeah. it often feels that way simply because of the amount of skill required to play Syndicate properly. Mm -hmm. Because for the vast majority of players who only play after work or, you know, maybe a couple of hours here and there, like Syndicate is going to be very difficult to master. So if Syndicate is not, you know, blatantly OP, it's going to be very, very hard for, you know, more casual players to get into it. 
but you're automatically gonna see less syndicate on the ladder. And, and then we're gonna get in a situation like if you do some buffs, and it's very, very obvious how to play it, and when it is not as difficult to master, you know, a specific deck, only then you are gonna see Syndicate more uh, frequently on the ladder or, or, or in any non-competitive environment. I feel like one of the problems we also sometimes have with Syndicate is... Um... Okay, something that's super important in Gwent is sequencing, right? Um, and there's even more emphasis on sequencing on in a faction like Syndicate, where uh, everything has to be in two steps. You have to gain coins, and then you have to spend them. And uh, sometime, um, in, when we design a card, uh, the, the, that balance is hard to lend in the design process. Um, and what we've been kind of seeing and experimenting with the most recent change to Syndicate is giving a bit more leeway on uh, that, um, that, that sequencing process. Now, people might say we gave too much leeway <laughs> and, and that the faction became too easy to play. Um, but uh, I, like in, in terms of philosophy, um, I think it's an interesting direction that we took. Yeah, and we actually have one, one question considering that. Um, one viewer is wondering if the new Jackpot leader was developed to get new players to try out Syndicate because it lowered that, you know, that skill cap a bit, the requirement to count the coins, for example, and, you know, manage them properly. Was that the consideration during the development? Uh, I think it came as like a secondary reason. Uh, like, um, but not as the primary one, right? It, it wasn't, oh, yeah. we want to make Syndicate easy to play. Let's, let's do this. That, that did not happen. Um, but it was like, hey, that could be really interesting. Um, oh, that, that suddenly that changes a lot, right? Like the, it creates a lot of, um, interactions that you didn't think of prior to this. Like it makes you see, uh, syndicate in a new, new light. And the added effect is it turns out it might probably also make it a bit easier to play, um, uh, for, for, yeah for players that don't want to go as much in, into sequencing. Um, and, yeah. and, I think, and I think in that regard, it, it did its job, right? It made you see Syndicate in a in new light. Um, again, it's, it's the, the final question is how much uh, it should matter in terms of balance and whatnot. And a lot of uh, discussions can be made on that topic. But uh, in in terms of uniqueness, like uh, yeah, I, I think it it created interesting things. Yeah, yeah I, I, I feel like you know the the last few answers really give us an image on how you guys you know perceive certain rules or, or boundaries in Gwent. You know whether whether it's the you know unit cap or coin cap or you know the gain coin spend coin uh, system. You kind of try to keep pushing the boundaries to see what happens. If that opens some yeah. so up some 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 more space for 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 balance or or new content in the future, 
yeah. Uh, one thing I, I do want to underline is like we're trying to not be careless about it, right? We're aware <laughs> that there are things that you cannot do, right? Yeah. Uh, you still have to preserve the the core identity of the game, right? Um, but yeah, I, I feel like it's 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 really important to keep playing around these rules um, that they make you see the games a bit differently, and and like when you try to see things under that high. Um, a lot of things in the game are made to break rules. Stuff like resilience uh, is is a way to break rules. And uh, what what does that create? Uh, well, some things. <laughs> and maybe we shouldn't. And the past tells us that we should be really, really careful about breaking this rule. <laughs> um, but. Uh, um, but then, like for instance, uh, we put resilience on on artifacts, and we get something that's completely different and and unique. Yeah. So yeah, I feel like design is about playing with your boundaries. Absolutely. But, but when so you mentioned resilience, I already had the image of resilient bay that works in my head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, of, of course, you weren't part of the team back then, but I'm sure you you've seen some screenshots. <laughs> I, I, and I mean, um, uh, the period of time where I played Gwen the most was during the very beginning of the Alpha? No, the late Alpha, I think. Um, and so at the time, you know, Monster still had that ability of keeping uh, the last unit you played over the, the next round. And... Look, thankfully that was removed from the game, right? <laughs> but also it's something I, I, that's still very dear to my memory because I loved the interactions it created in terms of sequencing. So yeah, like there are interesting stuff even in like the most painful <laughs> memories from Gwen's past, I think. I mean, you have to learn from from your own mistakes, and just the fact that you know some mechanic or or uh, a specific interaction was problematic back then, it doesn't mean that if you you know look at it now and kind of reintroduce it in a more balanced way, it's gonna be problematic now. Uh, moving um, on, because we talk a lot about all these things, and there's so many yeah. questions we have we have on our list. Yeah, we have to step up a bit on that. Sorry. But yeah, well, you know, that, that was the consideration about the veterans as well. I remember we were discussing that with Buja, that veterans are the things that you're, you know, carefully implementing because there were some flashbacks, you know, from the past about those being really abusive. But oh, yeah, it turned oh, out Jesus to be a race. I forgot about veterans, but uh, earlier we were talking about, uh, you know, making bronzes more relevant in the later round and veteran one was one of such um that that, that was one of the intention behind uh, this keyword so yeah it's something that we do with that we do think about <laughs> yeah all right so let's talk about another archetype everyone's favorite probably right now cloggers oh, no. right <laughs> <laughs> So it's been in the game for a while and uh, has undergone a few changes, actually. And uh, how do you look at that archetype right now? And can we expect it being further supported or maybe tuned down a bit in the future? How does it look like at the moment? Uh, 
the future is the future. <laughs> um, it's uh, it's hard to tell at the moment, right? We'll we'll see how things evolve. Yeah. Uh, but in general, I, I think Clog is uh, an interesting archetype, and I mean, I'm, I'm still I'm I'm gonna keep using that eye of uh, freshness and 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 what it creates. Um, I think. I think it's Jason that said in one of the interviews that you have to think about like, clock could be annoying to play against, but it's also something that's really fun to play. And 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 that and like that's really important. And, and so we have to strike a balance. Uh, like it's not good if, if something is too annoying, right? It's it's if something is uh, completely ruining your day. Um, but yeah, I think I think the archetype is 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 something. Oh my god, I'm gonna keep using the same words. That's terrible. Um, but uh, yeah, and uh, especially with the latest changes that we made so like not being able to clock tokens uh it was one way to address some of the most infuriating uh, interactions that that they had and and not only that for example if you look at cloggers in february right uh you know mm -hmm. full on lockdown cloggers viper which are mentor at adrenaline three cogrin adrenaline two. oh god that was that was something else but i feel like you guys have been making ground like lockdown is no, no longer a thing but like, people actually reverted to tactical decision which i guess was the uh desired ability for this archetype and then as you as you already said uh tokens can no longer be spawned on on top of the deck um, Mentor is back to Adrenaline 2, uh, Colgrim is Adrenaline 1. I feel like it is now okay to play Cloggers. Like, when it was first introduced, I didn't play Cloggers, because if I did, I would instantly lose, like, you know, 20 followers, because people are like, oh my god, not this again, <laughs> right? But I feel like it is acceptable now. Like, if you are playing against Cloggers, you are not necessarily feeling bad about it, because there is a way to ways to counter it like you can discard your cards you can play golds you can play actually go good bronzes that you think like okay if, if if it lands on top of my deck i'm not gonna feel bad about it mm -hmm. so so i feel like cloggers is it, it, definitely not as toxic as it used to be uh but there's a question i would like to ask here and and that's player agency like how do you guys perceive it like is it is it important and and um you know how do you place archetype on like, where on the map of when do you place archetypes that limit, you know, player agency? So player agency is super important, but also I think um, the way we perceive it as designer might be a bit different from the way players uh, speak about it, uh, at least the most vocally uh, on, on places like Reddit. Um, the, the first thing is, Gwent, through its basic rules, has a lot of player agency. Uh, and uh, this, this player agency comes from the ability to pass and uh, how you decide to sequence your cards. And as you said, uh, when you play a, a, against Clog, uh, especially in the, in the later variants, uh, you have agency through, hey, uh, which targets do I make available 
my opponents to clog, right? If I if I don't give him anything good to clog, uh, it, it can turn out in my favor. Um, so I, I I felt like you always have this natural uh, agency, and then uh, there there's like um, what what player plays and and um, <laughs> I'm still losing my words. Um, I'm trying to regain my train of thoughts. Uh... It actually ah, reminds sorry. me of Kalkstein in The Witcher 1. Whenever you approach him, he would say, Oh, I'm sorry, I was lost in thought. <laughs> I'm terrible. Um, one argument that you uh, hear very often um, uh, uh, about Clog is players saying that uh, they don't get to draw their goals and, and it feels really terrible. Mm. And I feel like uh, for a lot of player, player agency is the ability to uh, execute your game plan. Um, whereas as designer, we kind of consider it more as the ability to find a way uh, to victory, which does not necessarily mean executing your game plan. It, it can mean that you have to travestite what your deck is meant to do because uh, a certain type of deck requires you to play differently against it. And some, uh, it, it can feel bad sometimes. Um, I think... I think I've been often told about this example from Street Fighter that a lot of players, the reason so, much play, so many players don't like playing against Dalsim, which is that Indian guy that with the stretching limb, is because Dalsim requires you to play differently from how you would play against other types of characters. Uh, and, and, and the most um, vocal uh, people will say that when you play against Dalsim, you're, you're not playing Street Fighter. You're playing a different game that's against Dalsim. So uh, we have to strike a balance um, uh, on, on, on that topic. But also you have to accept that uh, sometime uh, you're going to have to play a bit differently. Um, and then... Some and then some decks uh, actually uh, limits. Um, oh. I'll backtrack. Uh, there is another kind of agency which is through the deck building. Um, when you decide to make a deck that's full on greed and that's not gonna have uh, a lot of removal or disrupt, um, you're. You also have to accept that your the, your agency uh, gets limited, and uh, what we saw, for instance, when V was very prevalent, was players starting to include tech slash hate cards in their deck building, so stuff like Irden, uh to answer it, and that's a way to regain agency, right? Now, as designers, for us, the question is to say, are we happy about it? Are we happy that players are starting to include Geralt's in all of their decks because they find that it's the only way for them to beat that deck? 
And, well, as you kind of saw, the answer is we're not exactly happy about it. So we try to tune down the deck so that you, you'd regain agency over it more naturally. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, basically, we the way we perceive agency as, as designers is something that, uh, as the player, you're, you are able to twist. Uh, and it's kind of uh, for you to decide to do it. I think this is such an important point, and it actually reminds yeah. me of early homecoming because I remember when we had pub, you know we had PDR and then we had the official launch. A lot of people complained. There is no consistency in Gwent anymore. I I have a game plan that I can't execute, and the reply from the devs was always the same: We don't want you to have a sing a, a single specific game plan where every game you play your cards in the exact same order. We want you to adjust. So what happens? If you didn't draw this card or that card, how do you adjust your game plan to find another path to victory? And I feel like now we have more consistency, but we have also a more a you know wider variety of decks, and you have to play against them differently. And and, and cloggers is one of those decks. That that's yeah. That point is super important. Um, yeah, single non-flexible game plan. Is, is the opposite of agency. And I feel like what makes Gwen so interesting in the CCG market is exactly uh, that, that you are able, that, that you have that agency, that you're able to do, to um, pivot uh, to, 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 to a point uh, way more than, than you'd be able to in, in other games. Uh, as a player, uh, I was immensely interested in Artifact uh, for that exact reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, it, and as a player, is the reason I got interested in Gwent at the beginning. Um, because I actually didn't know about the game. And uh, a friend of mine came to me and, and told me, like he knew that I was interested in this kind of stuff. He started telling me about this this game, and that's how I I, I played it at first. Yeah, I think that this is actually super linked to our next question as well, and you actually answered it partly. But yeah, I think you know it's really super rewarding that you're finding that other way to win the game other than your initial game plan, because it just it just shows your skill, right? If you manage to win without your your cards, your your main goal, right? Then it makes you a better player, basically. So there's uh, there's a huge place for for improvement in in that matter, whether you can find the other way of winning or you need to stick to just one strategy and play the deck according to the guide, for example, right? So yeah, uh, but cloggers actually and this is gonna be almost the last time we are mentioning that deck feels like you know the deck where every card contributes to that end goal and rather than just puzzling around the smaller packages of cards right you have the specific strategy that you need to fulfill and um, the question is actually is is this feeling of consistent synergies and strategy something you take into account when working on new content you partly answered that question, but maybe you could elaborate elaborate a bit more on that. Is that the main reason that should be built around the deck should be built around, or or not really? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
sometimes yes. Uh, like more than I mean, more than often we try to make stuff consistent, and we try to picture the way it's going to be played. Because if we don't do it, uh, there's a chance that the cards are not going to be relevant at all, right? Yeah. So it's I I used to have this game design teacher that said that um, 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 ah, I forgot the terminology, damn it. Um, you know, um, when you play these uh, games like Minecraft and players come up with completely new way to play the game, like they create mini games inside the game. Emergent gameplay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the teacher that used to say emergent gameplay is bad game design. Mm -hmm. His argument is if it's emergent gameplay, it means that you did not anticipate it, which means you did not do your job. Um, so I, I kind of try to live with that philosophy of, well, we, we should really be seeing things coming. But also, as I said before, this is a job about recognizing that you're wrong. And of course there's a lot of stuff that we don't see coming and so it's always really interesting and fun to see ways that the player uh, kind of puzzle up things together and come up with stuff that we had not pictured like when we first designed uh the poison arc the set of poison archetype uh, of the way of way of the witcher we for sure <laughs> did not imagine uh, the way it would be played, uh, uh, as in that mid-range uh, pirate call slash jackpot deck that we have at the moment. <laughs> um, in, in in so yeah, we we try to do stuff that are consistent, but also sometimes uh, it gets played in a completely different ways, and you just have to accept that and, and shift uh, the way you design. Yeah, it actually made me think even more of Clovers, because I know that you guys are trying to make Hyperthin a thing, and every single addition to Hyperthin makes Cloggers better. So instead of playing Hyperthin, people actually play Cloggers. <laughs> or yeah. Mill, for that matter. <laughs> like, uh, of, uh, if you thought we, we, would, we would not mention Mill on this podcast, you were wrong. Because that's the only ar archetype right now I, I I don't enjoy playing against. I'm not I'm not mm -hmm. sure about chat or or you guys, but playing mill against mill just feels like an RNG fiesta to me. <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 like, I, 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 to speak about this. Um, <laughs> I mean, for the record, I I'm, I don't think um, mill is gonna. I mean, in the current state. I feel like it was more of um, what's the word? Uh, like a passing friend. Trend. Like uh, uh, I was told that uh, like there was uh, these two streamers. Uh, was it Crozier? And it's Spessy and Bushy. They are oh, like the they are yeah. they are the male brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they were playing uh, uh, these <laughs> mill decks and rushing to was it uh, two thousand six hundred MMR? Yeah, and like uh, it, it created a bump <laughs> in the play rates of mill, <laughs> and and that bump is kind of going down. Uh, at least that's what we're seeing um, stats wise. 
uh, and also like yeah um, so <laughs> I'm sorry I actually find it funny like when when I mentioned Mill I could I could see the restraint on your face like I'm not gonna talk about it I'm not gonna talk about Mill I'm not gonna talk okay Mill <laughs> and then you proceeded to talk about it anyway and for the record, like it, it, it's it's not like um, we designed four mil, right? It just happened. Yeah, it, it just kind of happens. Like they uh, they find tools, but also again, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, in a way, it is. This annoying, in a right? way we it is. Want, we don't want that deck to be uh, what NG is, right? But. Um, it's it, like it, I find it very interesting that uh, it can be played that way. That like sometimes you 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 start a game and you realize right from the get go that something is very wrong, and that you really need to react to it. Um, I uh, like again we we don't want this archetype to be the. The, the super like the the main archetype played by by NG, but I found it in, incredibly interesting that uh, that some that it exists. And actually, when you when you said that you know it's obvious that you have to react to something, this is mill now because I remember mill back in the day when it was just much worse. It was it was like a small mill package because the number of cards that you could use to mill your opponent was limited and it always kind of pretended to be something else like round one okay i'm playing against wholesome soldiers so yeah i'm playing like a thin index i'm just gonna thin my cards i'm gonna be happy and then round two surprise mill <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of feels that way yeah um so moving on to the next question i i i, I promise it's it's probably gonna be the last uh a clock related one I'm not sure. There, there might be something else on the list, oh but God. hopefully, hopefully, it's gonna be the last one, because I personally keep going back and forth on cloggers. As you said, you know, when you play it, it feels amazing, like because you have this mm -hmm. goal in your head, like okay, I'm gonna play these cards, and the payoff is gonna be round three when I play my Colgrim, right? But mm -hmm. when it is played, being played against you, it's not necessarily the greatest feeling in the world. At least, at least, it wasn't early on. Now it feels much better. But what I really like about Clog is how certain cards, without receiving any kind of changes, were instantly bumped into playability. Cynthia, a card that, you know, a year ago... Who's gonna play Cynthia? That card doesn't exist. Uh, yeah. You know, Asira, like, a lot of people were complaining that, okay, now you can put your scenario back in, so who's gonna play Asira? That card is completely dead. Uh, Infiltrator, same story. And these cards, you know, found their niche. And and we can see that in other archetypes as well. So my question is, is it a conscious decision? Like, when you are brainstorming about new content, is it something that you look at? Like, you know what? We have, you know, these three, four cards that could actually be part of something new? Um, yes and no. Uh, sometimes, yes. Like, we, we are like, hey, uh, these, like, one or two cards exist, and they are actually touching on something that could be very interesting. Let's try to... Um, uh, to explore that space. Um, but I feel like more often than not, it's more like we have an idea, something that, that we want to explore and develop for the faction, and then we start to realize the implication of that idea. 
and realize, hey, actually, that means that suddenly this card uh, uh, it becomes really relevant. Let's consider it in the design process. <laughs> and you know, it's it's it actually made me think about um, Fangs of the Empire. I remember so many people questioned the existence of that card for a very long time. And then, you know, all, like, out of a sudden, we got Ball and all those poison shenanigans. And the facts of the Empire went from a card that nobody even remember existed to being a staple for a year and a half, if not longer. I, I mean, I wasn't there when that happened, but uh, looking at it, I'm pretty sure uh, they considered it from the get-go, right? Because it's... Like, if they knew they were going to work on Poison and things of the Empire already existed, you you you, you have to realize that it's going to be played, right? Yeah. It's kind of the same when we did uh, Self-Poison Syndicate. Uh, like, we it was already a thing, right? Um, there existed some cards that tried to give you payoff for safe Poison. And we were like, okay, so how can we actually f try to flesh this out? Um, I think I, I wasn't there at the very early brainstorms for what became Clark, but I think I was told that uh, they they had uh, cards like um, Cynthia and Asire in mind from the beginning. Right, and I have a question. It's it's more of a you know personal <laughs> favorite of mine because. There was a card back in beta when called Elias, and it worked differently than it does now. Like back in beta, mm -hmm. that card would boost itself whenever you would mulligan it away. Ah. Like it jumped into your deck, and you were like, okay, nope, mulligan. And there was like a lot of cards in Scoia'tael that made use of that mechanic. Like you could mull like you mm -hmm. could fix your hand constantly. And now we see that in Nilfgaard, and we see cards like uh, Sunset Wonders as well. So my question is, is there any chance? That Beta Elias will return, for example, in Nilfgaard or any other faction. Because there is many more ways to manipulate the state of your hand now, and that card was freaking awesome. So, kind of as you said, uh, Beta Gwent was like a very different time. And I, I, honestly, I think it's a different game. And so, like, when we are designing, um, you know, ideas can come from any kind of places, right? And quite naturally, some ideas come from thinking about previous times and Beta Gwent. As a matter of fact, it turns out we talked about that very specific card not that long ago. Right. Like it came up uh, during a brainstorm uh, when some ideas were being thrown away. Um, the thing is, like, it's just brainstorm, right? Like and uh, and anything can happen. Um, where did I want it to go with this? Just like even if the card came back as is, uh, it probably would not be creating the same kinds of dynamics, right? It it would play completely differently just because the state of the game is completely different. So. Um, yeah, like, I, I don't think it would come back as is. Even if it did, it would be a different card. And I just don't know. 
Yeah, of of course, because like as we talked before uh, before uh, the show, you don't know what's happen what's going to happen. Like, you can only talk about what's now, right? And even if you have an idea of what could potentially be coming, it's basically non-disclosure. Like you can't talk about it. Yeah, because... and and there's also the fact that uh, it, it wouldn't be final anyway, and we we're always, um, you know going back and refining design and sometimes refining design means realizing that this idea just cannot be and and we need to uh, think of something else so that would also be making false promises yeah i'll just have you known that if you ever print a similar ability and slap it on lydia van bradeford you'll make me a happy man <laughs> i'll keep this in mind <laughs> moving on yeah, we, we were talking about that uh, a bit before as well. And uh, the one thing that most newer cards have in common is that there is this increased complexity when compared to the older content and to the basic set. Uh, and uh, what is the thought behind this change in design philosophy? And can we expect the game to continue moving in that direction to get more complexity? Obviously, there is a cap of complexity as well, right? To make it uh, new, new player friendly. But uh, what do you think about this? So uh, this increase in complexity is something that kind of happens naturally in the in the like in the life cycle of a game. But like um, you've kind of explored everything that was in the basic design space, and you kind of need to explore new grounds, um, and and that often comes with added complexity. As you said, there's a cap to it um, because at some point things just become too complex, too convoluted. Uh, not UX friendly, so um, we try we we try to do our best for cards to keep being um, like intuitive enough. Let's say <laughs> um, so. Like I feel like what what we've what we're doing at the moment, what we've reached uh, is it's. I, the ideal uh, complexity, where like we have enough space, and uh, if we keep going, we just we, 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 it's just it's just gonna be a mess. <laughs> um, something else to consider is uh, homecoming. Uh, it was something really special, um, and it had this very strong goal of building strong foundations. Uh, for the game, uh, because uh, from what I've been explained, designers at the time felt like uh, that was what was lacking uh, all data grants, strong foundations. And this intention uh, also means that uh, the game got w w was basic in terms of effects, because you were working on the foundations. And uh, it's only from these strong foundations being established that uh, we could start building complexity. And, and that like, if you try to build complexity right from the get-go, uh, you can easily lose your way. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, another one as a follow-up as well. 
Uh, is there any like mechanic or, or a card maybe that you created that is in the game right now that you're not so satisfied with in terms of complexity? Maybe that you think that it's too complex for the players or or it's just, you know, you're just not satisfied with it. I need to think. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, that would mean only thinking about stuff that came out since Wave of the Witcher. Uh... Yeah, it's like kind of hard to, you know, dig up from the spot, but... <laughs> yeah, um... Honestly, I think I'm pretty happy. I, I like... I don't feel in, in my... Like, because... Okay, so... We are a design team, right? It means uh, we don't necessarily all agree with each other. Um, and it's it's super important. Thanks God we don't agree. And uh, what I what I love the most about that that job is when we enter debates about uh, design, about balance, uh, etc. And uh, I feel I don't feel like I'm lacking. Uh, the space and time uh, to talk about this. Uh, how to say? I, I don't. I am. I, I don't feel um, limited, basically. And so, uh, I, I I never feel frustrated about what we released because uh, we we got all the leisure to talk about it. Uh, we we don't necessarily do compromise, and uh, yeah, I think it, like when you have uh, one or two designers that do not feel uh, confident, that feel very scared about something, that usually leads to discussions, right? You don't want to leave the stuff as is. So the result of this is, uh, I think all of us are uh, really happy about the stuff that we release. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I actually have Jimoni asking one additional question here and that actually was reading my mind Jimoni because I was thinking about that as well uh, do you remember Jean do you remember any mechanic or card that saw the most debate in regards to its implementation or design in the design team yeah <laughs> uh, yeah, let's spice things up. Uh, let's throw some people under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. So are, we talk about so many things. It's just hard <laughs> to come up with a good example. Uh, God. You are simply being diplomatic here. I'm pretty no, sure. no I'm, I'm genuinely trying to think of an example because we talk about stuff all the time and oh my it's genuinely very hard to answer this maybe it's you know it's the last thing that you were discussing like really strongly I, yeah, I guess we, we discussed a bunch around Master of Puppets because um, it's, uh, 
it's a card that's very hard to evaluate uh, in terms of value. So um, it, it's it's so a, a bunch of iteration and a bunch of uh, different stat points, <laughs> basically. Um, and and that was fun. That that, that was a fun process. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Makes sense. It's it's definitely an interesting card and, and probably pretty difficult to to balance. Being that five provision. <laughs> yeah, I I think that initially a lot of people will perceive this card as some sort of meme, but there will be a time. In the future, where somebody comes up with a crazy idea that actually works, and people will freak out about the card. Mm, I the way I perceive it is also like I, I think that even if the card is uh, not good, um, it's still gonna see play in uh, as you said meme decks, right? It's a card that looks fun, right? And, and you have that little middle game where it goes back and forth. But uh, to be honest, I kind of see it being played. Um, I think it's an interesting, maybe not like your main tool as the NG player, an interesting tech card uh, that's going to be especially good against um, uh, engine decks. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, even even against point slam, because if you get to steal uh, seven power cards with it, um, well, you got wait, seven... How many points is that? Oh my god, that's so hard to calculate. I think I think you need you need to steal an eight point card to get the average for like eight for five. Uh, no, because so okay, your opponent has eight points. You play Master of Puppet. I mean, uh, I, I, I guess you, you do it in two turns fashions, right? But you play Master of Puppets, you still has eight points. Now he has four points as you have eight. So you went from a difference of uh, minus eight for you to a difference of plus four, which is a 12-point swing. Yeah, so I think you have to do difference between the card that you steal and the Master of Puppets time two plus four. That's how you get 12. <laughs> two, ah, two, plus, oh, wow. 2 plus 4 minus 1, that's 3 quick maps. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a 7, it's a, ten, it's a 10 point swing. But also, how many times are you going to be able to do this? Um, your opponents can like play goals to limit uh, your possibilities, or just cards that are under Master of Puppets, uh, what Master of Puppets hopes to steal. Uh, and there's also sequencing, right? Uh, if if you do it too early, uh, then you have a problem. <laughs> oh yeah, because of the cooldown effect, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's like adrenaline with adrenaline with extra steps. I guess that's one way to see it. <laughs> yeah, kind of. So um, I I think like it's it's not an easy tool to use, and it's probably not suited to every situation. But I think there can be some really interesting use to it. And, and, and also interesting thoughts in the way you have to interact with your opponent when he plays that card. Absolutely. But th then again, you know, this kind of complexity is very... Um, it, it feels like a, like a signature 
thing, like a trademark for Novogarth. Right? I, mm, I, actually, yeah. actually, there's a content creator called Mercer, and he always says, if a card that is going to be printed in Novogarth is too easy to play, it's a bad card. <laughs> for example, he's not a huge fan of, of, of Art of Terra Nova because it was like too easy to play. Like, you, he, he always wants to see cards that are very, very hard to play. Like, the payoff is there, but you need to do a lot of work to get there, to get that point. Mm, so yeah, I don't necessarily agree with Art of Terra Nova being too easy to play. Because um, there's this whole setup that you have to do early. And what we've seen when, when we've played it is that uh, if you're not playing an actual spying deck, uh, it's not necessarily easy to apply spying to an interesting target. Um, I, I feel like it creates a lot of... Uh, like, I feel it's less about the actual complexity of the card and more about um, how, the interactions it creates, right? And as NG, um, who you give spying to suddenly takes another dimension when you have a card like Arto Terra Nova. And it also twists what your game plan is going to be, because uh, now that you gave spying to that card, you realize that these kinds of interactions open up to you. Um, so you might play in a completely different manner. So I felt like, yeah, sure, Ardol like, Terranova's design seems really simple, but uh, the dynamics that it creates, not simple at all. Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. But moving on, because we are slowly getting short on time. Uh, I think that's going to be a quick question, a quick answer, because we looked at, you know, the, the, the last few patches, and you know, recently we applied 20 plus, 24, 26, far-reaching changes to NR. Um, do you plan on releasing similar large-scale reworks for other factions as well? Um, I cannot really speak about plan just because, eh? Yeah, because, because it locks you. In, yeah, 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 yeah. You know. Um, it's very it's important to understand why we did that change, why we did that big rework, and and the reason is because we were not happy about the state of charges in NR, and we felt like we needed to go in the nitty-gritty to change it uh, so that uh, not only it would feel better, but also it would open up uh, design space. Uh, so the easy answer to this is to say that if we ever fell again, like there is such a dimension of the game that needs to be revisited so that uh, we have more space and it feels better, then we'll do uh, a rework. Yeah, that's a fair point. But moving on, Hazard. Just time, 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 time. Yeah, this is actually connected as well, right? So uh, I think we answered that question, but just to just to take a look at it, to be sure. Um, we know that you know in the last few patches we could see more and more cards being adjusted or reworked. And are you planning to keep balancing cards and mass, just like uh, with Northern Realms, for example? to bring them up to the current power level? Or will there be also the smaller patches with fewer changes? We know that expansions move to just different direction right now. We have those smaller patches, right? And smaller um, parts of cards being added. 
and how does it gonna they're gonna look like um again it's, it's the, the future is very vague for me but uh, we are learning to uh, work with that drop system and one thing that we're starting to realize is that uh, when when we release one drop one expansion uh, we probably should not be making a huge patch <laughs> uh, because uh, it it kind of takes uh, like focus away from the expansion like either it takes focus away from the expansion or the expansion steals the spotlight away from the changes we're making and everything is going to be jumbled up anyway because we release the expansion so it's probably better to reserve it for uh, more quieter times. And uh, the in-between times between expansions uh, is, is probably more, be more, it's gonna be more reserved to this, like making actual, um, like, uh, well, I'm not thinking the word, but, <laughs> but uh, I, uh, like a uh, balance changes the card. Yeah, because yeah, the, the last time you actually released an expansion, I was thinking 26 new cards, and the balance mm -hmm. patch that went along with it was 53 cards, if I'm not mistaken. It was massive. Yeah, that, that, that was big. And, uh, like, there's reasons we did it that way, but the, the bottom line is uh, we felt like... Uh, it it might not it wasn't the best idea to release that in our rework at the same time as um, the expansion. We we wanted it to be available because uh, because like the NR the the NR expansion felt better with the reworked uh, NR, but also that was like a lot of change at the same time. Yeah, a lot of new content to digest. Uh, but you know, speaking of reworks, we we kind of talk about it. But I, I'm I'm just wondering: is there is is there a list of cards that you think okay, these are the card cards we need to look at mm -hmm. in the future? Is there a list of you know cards that were released in the past where you think like uh, maybe we should buff it, or 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 maybe should we work it? Because sometimes it just feels random, right? There's there's patch notes. We see okay, this bronze got bu got buffed, but why this bronze and not that bronze? Um, there isn't an actual list. Uh, it's kind of like so. What we're starting to do is with every patch, we try to have goals so that it's it does not feel as random. Um, in the past, some of these goals have been hey, uh, we want to increase, we want stratagems to feel better, and so we touch multiple stratagems at the same time, right? Um, and so that's that's one point. The second point is, uh, depending. Well, I guess that would be another thing. But depending on the state of the meta, uh, there are stuff that we want to address right away. Um, and then there's the buff that we do in provision of the expansions, where it's like, hey. Uh, that card would go really well with that thing that we're doing for the expansion. Um, so let, let's make it feel a bit better. Um, and in the midst of all of this, uh, sometimes other cards slip in because we're like, hey, you know, might as well. 
so I realize it sometimes feels a bit random. Uh, this is kind of the byproducts of the way we work, where we like have these very long design discussions, and sometimes topic come up and they land in the patch. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like we were always kind of looking at uh, the card that exists in the game and uh, what what would deserve to be revisited. But also, we, yeah, we try to have it achieve something, right? Not if we were just mindlessly giving provisions to card, um, that wouldn't necessarily do good. Fair enough. A very um, clear explanation of the, of the process. <laughs> yeah, there's there's also one thing that uh, comes up um, again and again, and Buja was addressing that as well in one of his latest twigs. Um, and well, it's not actually included in the question, but the thing is about the rotation route and about um, including specific cards and specific decks. There has been recently a number of Reddit posts regarding to some odd includes in Nilfgaard, for example, Syndicate, and in general in all of the decks. And some of the cards definitely see more play and they are higher value than anything else, right, in the provision range. And is it something that you are keeping, you know, the track off and thinking off? And, and you know, what is your point as a designer on that auto-including and rotation? Um, <laughs> it's a complicated topic. <laughs> um, I think in general, the first thing is um, the community perception isn't always uh, equal to the actual state of the game. Uh, there's also times where uh, the way community perceives a certain thing might uh, jump up uh, its uh, use rate. I mean, kind of the way, kind of what happened with Mill, right? Mill isn't necessarily better than before, but uh, we had a trend that uh, happened over a few days because players were playing it, and suddenly a lot of players felt like trying it. Um, so that, that's the first thing with auto includes. Uh, but yeah, I guess we, we, we want variety, right? Uh, because the, the, I, I think the game feels better that way. Um, when every match feels a bit different, so uh, it 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 happens. It it will keep happening because, as as I said, uh, this is a job about making mistakes. I mean, not about making mistakes, but about realizing that you made a mistake. Um, but yeah, I I think. It's not like we're gonna slap a card because uh, mm. you know when when you nerf a card, you have to make sure that there are uh, alternatives. If you're mindlessly destroying a card uh, without trying to consider what it might be replaced by, you're not answering the problems. Um, at least not always. So sometimes we're not touching a card because um, if we did, we just hurt the faction and we would not be improving uh, the actual diversity uh, size variety. 
So it's it's a matter of making sure that there's there's multiple different uh, interesting options. Yeah, I mean, like you know, a, yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, like a lot of people are, for example, mentioning like Sunset Wonders right now. But it's obvious that you implemented the card to have people play with it, right? So there is still some time. But I was thinking more of, for example, Karate Heatwave. Obviously, there has to be some sort of a hard removal, right? That is in the game that exists in the game and can answer anything, right? That the player wants. And this is obviously uh, um, auto-include in lots of decks, right? But there is basically just no alternative. And I think that this is going to exist probably in, in any card game. There just has to be some hard removal that, that you have in a deck, right? Because in other way, well, there are going to be some really dangerous, probably, strate strategies uh, emerging if, if there wasn't, right? I feel like it got way better. Uh, we used to have uh, metas where... Almost every deck was running Karate Wave. Yeah. Uh, on your MNC too. And uh, you would often not consider the Devotion routes uh, because of these cards. Yeah. I think the game is, a com is in a completely different uh, uh, state right now. And you still see Karate Wave, but a lot of non Devotion decks decide to not run it. Um, Oniromancy is also uh, so also its play rate declined because other alternative and options uh, are available. Well, it's it's not related to Karate, uh, to Oniromancy, but uh, something that's very dear to me is how, um, in reaction to the discard package being buffed in Scalagap, some players stopped including Blood Eagle. That that's so interesting to me. I love it. <laughs> yeah, with all uh, honesty, I haven't seen Blood Eagle in a while. Yeah. Uh, it declined maybe a bit too much, right? But, <laughs> uh, but like, uh, which, uh, which one was it? I think it was qualifiers before uh, the, the Gwent Masters season one. Um, well, like, players had started to play with that discard uh, package, and like, you'd see decks that had Blood Eagle, you'd see decks that had the discard package, you'd see decks that were Flurry instead of Warriors. Yeah. Uh, that, felt really, that felt really special. But I, I would like to yeah. highlight the fact that we did such a tremendous job avoiding Sunset Wanderers for oh, almost two hours, guys. Almost two hours have passed, and we didn't mention Sunset Warriors until Hesser obviously had to bring it up. Um, Hold it. Ah. Yeah, is, is there anything you can tell us about the card and its future, Jean? I, I doubt it, but... Uh, it's, yeah... <laughs> not much I can say about it, and especially since it's a touchy topic, I, I, I prefer to avoid it. <laughs> okay, so, so we are just going to wait for the patch notes. Uh, we actually have a question about you know faction identity, and we we initially intended to talk about that you know in detail about every faction's identity, but considering that we are running short on time, you know sometimes there's there's complaints right that oh you know this card is doing this or this card is doing that, like the way you look at the game now, are you still you know following certain faction identity, or are you just you know moving away from it? 
Um, I feel like we're getting better at following faction identity. Um, historically, like you, sometimes you see uh, players uh, talking about how um, this faction deserves to get that card that exists in this other faction. Um, and that's actually our fault because we used to do this kind of things where uh, kind of every faction would get the same tool. Uh, I feel like we're doing a better job at it, like making sure that no, not every faction is supposed to have the same tools. Uh, if you want a very peculiar tools, go fetch it in neutrals and uh, reinforce that different factions do different things. Uh, one example I kind of like is this. I, for, I keep forgetting names, I'm sorry, but there's this card in Syndicate that used to be able to lock. Kurt. And it was changed to give, yeah, Kurt was, and it was changed to give bounty. Um, and there's, well, complain about that, uh, the, that change, which I understand, but also uh, it was made on purpose because we realized that, well, it's the only lock that Syndicate has and actually it probably should not have lock because it has other ways to answer problems that lock answers. And also, um, it's easier to talk about it now, but uh, we knew that we were going to do bounty uh, support in this expansion. So it was like, eventually, uh, it's going to feel better. That's actually a very good point, because constantly, at, at least once a week, there's somebody who says, NR needs an offensive purify. Yes. And there, mm. I and I guess there is a thought why NR does not have an offensive purifier. Yes, every faction does not get the same tool. That's very important. Like one of the reasons why we wanted to talk about faction identity is people complain about you know certain factions more than others. Mm. Like I I don't want to seem biased, but of course I am because I only play one faction. Um, uh, but you know people always complain. Oh, Novgorod is doing this. Novgorod is doing that. And I st one thing that I always, you know, remember when I see all these complaints is something that actually Jason told me like, shortly before his podcast episode. Because we were mm -hmm. talking about the new leaders uh, that we are going to review. And he said, you know, Novgorod is the most difficult faction to design because of all this evil shit we are trying to come up with for them. <laughs> so whenever people complain about all, you know, all these locks and poison and, and clogging, I think this is intended. This is what the faction is meant to do. Yeah. So it, it, it something very funny is is art to design as is as in we have to make sure about that we're not uh, pushing too much the games in directions that are just not fun. But in terms of how easy it is to come up for uh, ideas for them, oh my god, they have such a strong identity, and it's so evil. Ideas keep flocking by. <laughs> We keep having IDs for for NG, um, and then it's a matter of uh, actually making sure that these IDs are good for the game. I can I can Im only imagine what ideas you had in the past that didn't make it because they were just too triggering. Is there is there, is there actually something you could mention? Of course, I know that 
it's hard to come up with something and you don't necessarily want to talk about things that could potentially be in the game in the future. But is there like a single mechanic or ability where you think this is so evil it's never going to be in the game, but we did think about it? Nothing comes to my mind, like, honestly. Um, it's also because I haven't been there that long. Uh, but I feel like in general... It's also... Um, I'm the type of person that comes up with ideas that are already kind of refined, uh, which also means I don't get that many ideas. And I work way better with people that are way more spontaneous and get a lot of ideas, and then you can keep refining them. So uh, in terms of the ideas that I got, I don't feel like I had something where then we discussed it and it was like, holy shit, no, no, please, no. Or more often, it's like I get an idea and it's not actually good. It's like, well, yeah, but what's the point? It's it's not even good to play. Yeah, I, I can imagine how difficult it is because uh, I sometimes do these um, rework streams or like custom car contests, and you know sometimes like there are so there's so many great ideas, but I think you know if that was actually in the game, oh god, please no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know to uh, sum this segment up. I, I know that you said multiple times that you can't really talk about the future because the future is the future. We 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 are living in now with what is what is now. But can you give us like a brief rundown of what we can expect from you guys in 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 the when it comes to design in the foreseeable future, like couple, next couple of months maybe? Uh, so speaking very broadly, I think uh, that you're that you can expect to keep seeing dif uh, designs that is more refined. Because I feel like what we're discovering with this drop system is that it makes it way easier to deliver something that's coherent. When you design an entire expansion at, at one time, you have to speculate a lot on how the game is going to get played. And, well, you get it wrong. So uh, a lot of cards do not see play. Um, but what we're finding with uh, the drop system is that not only uh, designing less cards at at a time uh, allows us to make them more uh, strongly coherent, but also that once you start working on the second drop, uh, having already this uh, core thing that you can iterate on that which has been built in in the drop one and. And then eventually start seeing the drop one being played, so that that gives you even more information. And then on the drop three, um, uh, we we can really see. Oh, okay, we have now this this thing that all merges together, but there might be still uh, holes that we could fill. And um, I, I think we're yeah learning uh, the the strength of this design process and. Uh, that it's only allowing us to to deliver better stuff. Looking forward to it. As I told you before the show, uh, the 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 complexity and the fun discovering the cards right now is just so much more than it was in the past. And uh, as you can see, based on all these Twitter questions that you're getting, because there is a card that people are like, okay, I don't understand. Please explain. And it's always amazing. For example, uh, Simlas, right? People thought, okay, I can spot just two, you know, uh, talismans, bone talismans, like for a lot of points. 
But there's already ideas. If I play Vanadane and if I, you know, move my waylays like, like Mulligan them next round, I'll have more of them and cra crazy, crazy ideas. Now coming up just just a day or two after the reveal, the card is not even in the game yet, and people are already theory crafting all these all these interesting things. But uh, moving to the next segment, we only have one question here. Uh, competitive went, yes, sir. Oh, yeah. We usually have a bit more here, but we wanted to ask um, this question, considering uh, you being a designer, right? So, uh, is is competitive gameplay something that you're interested in? in general as a designer or or not so much and to what degree does the tournament meta for example or the decks that the competitive players are playing uh affecting your design decisions or, or the team's design decisions in general um so i'm really interested into it because uh especially uh i especially find interesting how uh the game can get pushed to the limits basically now, as for how much it matters in our decisions, uh, competitive Gwent is, is, is slightly a different game. So if we were only designing competitive Gwent, it means that we would be only designing for a very limited population, right? Yeah. So, uh, of course, that, that's not feasible. But I think that competitive Gwent is actually pretty close from uh, Ladder Gwent. And more often than not, that the meta in Competitive Gwent is an elfier version of the Ladder Gwent, because uh, the format allow allows you to delve into more interesting and alternative strategies. And uh, the band system, uh, which is enforced by, by the band system, um, so, and, and there's the retro aspect, which is uh, what we've seen with stuff like Areca Swarm and Flurry, the discard package, which is player experimenting uh, in competitive Gwent, and then that stuff getting uh, having repercussion uh, on later Gwent. So, um, we usually we we design for later Gwent. But uh, competitive Gwent is always uh, on the back of our mind, and we always end up having an, uh, a direct influence over it. And it always ends up having a direct influence over the game. I hope that answered the question. It did. It did answer yeah, the question, absolutely. definitely. I, I, I especially like the part when you said, you know, we are not balancing uh, around competitive Gwent, because it actually reminded me of another game where the devs specifically said, we are balancing around the top 1%. So even if the game gets worse for the casual players, we are balancing about the top players. And it's it's not like we ignore them neither, right? We like if there was something that was incredibly cancer that was happening for the top zero point one percent, we'd address it. But uh, generally speaking, uh, we think about the broad Gwen's community, and uh, and and that in a way, always involve the competitive players. Fair point. That's a fair point. Uh, as, as we said, th this is the only question in this segment, because normally we talk about, you know, upcoming tournaments and qualifiers, but we do understand this is not your field of expertise. You are probably just watching, having fun as everyone else, and may maybe thinking, 
oh yeah this card is a problem <laughs> Uh, but moving on to the next and the last segment of the po of this podcast, personal Q and A. Uh, so there's a couple of questions from us and probably a few more from chat. Uh, oh, yeah. So let's start with something very very general, which is how did you get to work at CDPR and and how would you compare your you know working environment with your previous experience and, and other studios? Um. So. So as I said, uh, I used to play Gwent uh, at the end of the alpha, right? And I was introduced to the game uh, by uh, um, a classmate of mine, actually. And um, I, I <laughs> basically it came, became a meme in my um, promotion that I was very interested in Gwent. And uh, and that I would really love to do an internship there, which did not happen. Um, and so a few years later, uh, I basically a classmate of mine sent me uh, uh, like I I don't know what the word in English was job offer that they were basically looking for uh, game designers to join. Job listing. Uh, and, and of course, I was super interested, even though I was already uh, in a position working. So uh, I wasn't that happy about what I was doing. So I decided to apply and I went through the process. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that's kind of how it happened. Um, in terms of differences, uh, so the previous job that I was in, the previous company that I was in was Ubisoft. But Ubisoft is incredibly big, right? There's like 20,000 employees. So it's less about uh, the company itself than uh, the, what I was actually doing there in, in the position. And basically, uh, I the work wasn't as interesting to me. And in terms of the way we worked, uh, I, I was very alone. I, I, I was kind of working on my own thing. And with the COVID crisis, uh, that meant uh, also that I, I was very lonely. And I, I, kind of, I think I touched on this at the beginning, but that basically uh, the process, the, joining the, 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 the team uh, the, on Gwent felt so much different because we spend our days discussing and arguing and whatnot. So when comes the end of the day, remote, remote working, I don't feel lonely at all because I just spent seven, eight, uh, I mean, no, we don't, we don't stay, sit on the call all that long, but basically <laughs> discussing with people all day long um and, and it's a really great feeling i love it yeah i can I, I can see that plus i can imagine that you know working at cdpr and specifically the gwen team which is much smaller you probably get to interact with the community much much more than you would at let's say ubisoft uh well to be fair i wasn't working on an actual game at ubisoft so there wasn't even a community to interact with <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a part of the job that I was interested in, uh, even though it's, it's scary, right? Because I, I'm, I'm scared uh, of seeing, I don't want to put uh, the people I'm working with in trouble. Um, but, but yeah, uh, what I love about multiplayer games is 
the way they get appropriated by the community. So interacting with the community is is, is part of the experience. It's it, it's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, for community members and content creators specifically, it's just so amazing to have this option to interact with you guys. Not even when you are specifically creating content like this podcast to you know have devs on the show and talk about the game, but sometimes you know you tweet something or you say say something on stream and you don't you don't really think it's relevant and then you get a message from one of the devs say I really like what you said about the game or this or that. This feels very refreshing compared to many other games. Yeah. Personally, something that I just love is when people do these uh, very this written article where they delve into a topic. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but uh, someone in the community made a few articles on the stats of Mulligans. Um, uh, Team Legacy. Were... I think it's Legacy is doing, uh, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of stats. Mm. They also prepped the so, provision was, thing. That article was really interesting too, but that was another person. Um... It was about... Huh. Wasn't it about the probability of getting certain cards during various stages of Mulligan and stuff like that? Yeah, I think so. Because I think the article that you're referring to was about uh, the value of um, uh, filling, I think. Which was also an incredibly interesting write-up. Uh, there's actually a whole series about, about things like that. Like very scientific, you know, stat-based articles uh, on Gwen, things that we as players normally don't think about. And I, I, I can see Hesser just browsing in Google, already on the case, trying to come up with the Using articles. my Google too here, yep. Oh yeah. You'll be surprised, but quite often we are talking about a topic and chat is like, uh, what are we talking about? And Hesser uh -huh. already has the link. <laughs> he's, oh, he's already prepped. So efficient. Oh yeah, definitely. Um... But um, maybe we are going to find that article, but moving on, Hesser, uh, there's something you wanted to ask. And I think we kind of got an answer on that partially. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And yeah, before we move to the questions from the chat, and we have quite a few of them, but I'm going to pick the, the most spiciest ones, hopefully. And yeah, before you joined the Gwen team, were you aware of the Witcher novels franchise? Were you like, uh, you know, familiar with that? Were you reading the books maybe or watching? I'm I'm a terrible person. Uh, <laughs> I I discovered uh, the Witcher universe through the lens of Gwent, and uh, it's a really interesting experience. And I, I I really and I'm especially as someone that didn't know anything else about it. I love the lens uh, that I got through Gwent, and it it feels very special to me. Um. I have yet to play the games. I have yet to read the books. <laughs> the only thing I did is I finally watched the Netflix series, oh, which no, I know, no, I know, no. I know, please, please. <laughs> but what was so funny about watching the, the, the series was actually suddenly being able to link characters and events, which I knew from the God game. <laughs> that was a really funny experience. But I want to say for the record, I'm pretty much the only person uh, that that is that way in the team, and uh, that all, all luckily my gap in knowledge is 
filled uh, by my coworkers. Yeah, because because as you said, most of the team is Polish, and I think the Witcher novels in Poland are like you know this national treasure. If you told that uh, um, some people even read it through uh, school, like, yeah. uh, as as the school program, which yeah, yeah is really interesting to me. I mean, in in in, mo in many countries, uh, you know, The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings is is part of the uh, curriculum. Like you have to read it at school. Um, I, I, when I was a kid, I had to oh. read The Hobbit. Oh, because in France we just get the classics, right? So you end up reading Madame Bovary from uh, um, uh, no, no, I oh, I'm French. I cannot forget uh, Flaubert uh, from Gustave Flaubert, and it's a it's a book. That's literally about boredom. <laughs> How can you do that to school kids? The most French thing ever. <laughs> oh, that's so. That's so. Like, all these differences are so are so interesting. Yeah. But but is is it true, Hesser, that in Poland it's it's a school you have to read The Witcher? Uh, or is it or is it a recent development that you were not aware of? Well, I think that it got removed actually it's it's not in the program anymore in the curriculum but i i think that it was in the past i don't remember if i read it on my own in the past or was it in the curriculum i'm not sure but but i think it used to be it used to be and hobbit was in the curriculum as well yeah. <laughs> just like in netherlands but it's 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 actually interesting because the way i learned about the witcher was through the original polish tv series because uh, like my, my family is from Poland, so I was I was on vacations there, and my distant cousin who was watching the show. He was like, "Dude, this th there is this you know Witcher show we should watch and stuff like that." I was like, "Okay, let's 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 give it a go." And you know, I was like 10, 11 at the time. I was like, "Oh wow, this is pretty awesome." I was even I was even okay with the dragon in that series, and it's been criticized ever since. <laughs> Well, Bomblin is, is saying here that it used to be a bonus, uh, a bonus book in the curriculum, and I think yeah, that was the case in uh, in my school as well. Uh, but yeah, just uh, you were right. The article is from Tim Legacy, and I was confusing with some articles I read from Tim Bandit. I sent you the the link to the article. Awesome. Oh yeah, Tim Legacy, great article. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm sure Tilbro from that team is watching there. Great guy and a great friend of mine. Also uh, the article from Team Bandit, right? The two of you. Great articles. Thank you very much. I love reading these things. Yeah, I, th I think Team Bandit Gang actually produced the most written content in Gwent right now compared to other teams. Well, and, oh, and by the way, like I'm giving these shoutouts about these very specific articles, but in general, I enjoy uh, the content produced by all of the different teams and. Uh, these meta reports are always uh, really interesting to read, and we don't the more like details, the more happier, the happier I am. We don't like them. Uh, we don't I like meta reports because, because there's always this point. Like there's a new patch, everyone's trying to try something new, experimenting. Meta reports come out, comes comes out. Okay, that's it, guys, for this month. See you later. <laughs> because <laughs> now you're only gonna see the tier one decks. I mean, it's an it's an, it's an exaggeration, but sometimes it yeah, really feels like. I mean, that. yeah, I definitely get it. I mean, the thing is, as a player, I'm not that much into deck building, so I'm a filthy net decker, you know. <laughs> I'm not speaking specifically about Gwen. I'm speaking like the way I play CCGs in general. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Metaverse is like uh, God 
godsend to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's gonna yeah. be like you know the, uh, the 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 only quote from this podcast. I'm a, I'm a filthy Ned Decker, Jean. <laughs> Don't um, worry, Jean. I'm I'm a I'm a filthy Ned Decker as well. I love uh, meta reports. <laughs> uh, come on, you guys. Come on. Uh, but there's one more question on our own list that we want to ask, and it's part of our ongoing investigation. I'm not sure you will be able to give us a, a proper answer as you join the team uh, during during COVID and lockdown. But we are doing this. Uh, we are doing this investigation into the quality of Buja's coffee, because the way he used to uh, promote the job listings at CDPR was, "I'm making great coffee." So every single time we have somebody from the studio on the podcast, we are asking if that's actually true. And oh. there is two camps right now. One camp is oh. saying, "You know what? With this kind of machine, everyone can make it, make it, make a good coffee." Oh. And the other camp is saying Buja is the true barista. He knows everything about coffee there um, is to know. Um, yeah, you kind of guessed it. It's uh, uh, it's it would be hard for me to know. I had never heard about this, though. Since you mentioned it used to be on job listing, maybe I just forgot about the job listing. <laughs> but uh, I'll make sure to ask him uh, when we eventually get back to the office because good coffee sounds. Sounds like, like a nice thing. Yeah, we, we talked uh, to a lot of people about that. We talked to Vlad about that, Anna Zielinska about that, Anna Podetvorna, the artist who no longer is with Gwent. Uh, we also talk about that too with her. Like, it, like, any, every single time somebody is here with any kind of uh, affiliation to CDPR, we ask about coffee. Yeah. It's like a small tradition. But now, oh. questions from the chat. Make sure to tweet you when I, whenever I get to taste that coffee. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, we gotta know. <laughs> All right, jumping to the questions from the chat. We actually this time got a, quite a few of them. It's like either a complete desert of questions or we have like too many of them and I need to choose now. So yeah, but let's move to the, as long as it's, you know, the personal Q&A, let's move to the personal question. And I was asked to ask you, good to see you, Mini Thanos. And uh, to explain that one to us. <laughs> so what um, is the story behind that quote? This is uh, friends of mine uh, trolling me because on that very first uh, appearance that I had uh, in a dev video, All right. it, it was night in Poland. And uh, so a lot of light on my face was the blue light from the screens. And right. I easily get red. <laughs> so I got like this purplish tone, and someone in YouTube's live chat on the community, and some people, multiple people, I see you, called me Minitanos. It kind of became a private joke with my friends. All right, all right. Yeah, this is what happens a lot, I think. There was something like uh, with Spassy as well, where he had like this, uh, you know, yellow lightning behind in the background during the tournament and they also prepared like the uh the sunset wonders with spacy being a, a sun right so yeah it oh, happens yeah, a lot with that, like i didn't understood it <laughs> yeah um, so that's why it's wrong wow. yeah <laughs> so yeah lightning is is our enemy number one when it turns to streaming and you know oh yeah just, just just like you know that the um, content creator i mentioned mercer and he has a problem with his webcam so it always seems like it's pitch black in his room and people <laughs> you know he and people are, have always been saying he's a vampire and he's streaming from a crypt 
That's great. Yeah, or the players as well, right? There's always some funny stuff going on with the players' cameras during tournaments. Oh, yeah, like, like especially, especially, especially Tailbot. And Tailbot, yeah. All right, oh, all right. Stories. So we know something about Minithanas right now. And another great question uh, about um, maybe just gaming in general and game dev in general, uh, about microtransactions, right, in competitive video games. And oh, what no. do you think about this topic and monetization in general? Wow. Um, oh, yeah, that, that's my reaction as well. Um, so it's something that's really important in the sense that it's not part of my job. Um, <laughs> which is uh, actually something that's, that's really, feels really good because I used to work on uh, in a mobile gaming company, which meant that uh, in monetization was very much a part of design. <laughs> very much so. Um, and personally, uh, that's not why I entered video game. Uh, I mean, it's important. It's super important. It's super important to, to make money. Otherwise, there's no game. Um, but it's not what I love about it. And, and it's uh, it, it, thinking about the way to, uh, to make money off a game, uh, it, it it's, uh, it's, it kind of makes me depressed, honestly. Uh, it's super important, and thanks God some people are, are good at it and handling it. Um, but I'm also really happy that in the current state of things, uh, it's not something that I personally have to worry about. Um, all right, all right. And like from the gamer's perspective, like your favorite uh, microtransaction model would be what exactly? Do you have like your favorite one, that, the one that you could agree on, for instance? Um, I, I, I played a lot of uh, Team Fortress 2, uh, League of Legends, uh, some Dota, uh, Valve games in general. All right. So I, I grew very fond of the... Um, Cosmetic model, mm. but it's also a trap. Uh, a lot of games have tried to do cosmetics only, and have had the difficulties with it. Um, League was not cosmetic only, uh, and it, it's still not, even though they became a bit fairer, I guess. Uh, so. I definitely tend to prefer games where uh, everyone gets to play with the same things, um, but but at some point you do have to uh, make your game exist. And cosmetics only is not always the um, the the miracle answer. All right, yeah, but but it's it's still fair, right? It's like it's your option if you want to get some cosmetics. You can you can grab it, but obviously the game has to has to earn the money for the company. Obviously, obviously, I think we have time for one more question. So has to go through that list of of oh, chat man, questions. Oh man, this is gonna be hard. This is gonna be hard. Because normally, I... I mean, normally this podcast lasts for about two hours. We are already at two and a half hours. Oh my. <laughs> I mean, having, having interesting uh, guests who are very passionate about their work helps. 
I, I, I tend to talk a lot, so I'm so sorry. Uh, don't be. It's, no, it's, it's great. It's great. It's, it's great. All right. You know what? Maybe let's ask about devotion because we were talking about that as well. And there was a question um, which looks like this. Uh, since there are more stronger neutrals getting introduced over time, does the design team think of ways to incentivize devotion more? Uh, I think we had some of the designers and I think Buja also talking about it, but I would like to know your perspective too on that one. Um... Uh, devotion is a, is a very complicated topic um, because we want it to exist, we don't want it to be prevalent. And striking that balance is super hard. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like the situation recently has been better. Like um, we see decks having good incentives to go devotion, and sometimes deciding to break it off. Um, sorry, I'm I'm not quite sure how to develop that question actually. Um, hmm. Actually, it it makes sense. Just you know, it's it's difficult to to balance, but the team still wants to incentivize it in some way, right? To to make it You want that variety that variety, right? Yeah. Where like you don't want you to be to know from the get go that you're gonna go devotion or or that you're not. Yeah. Um so yeah, we're trying to strike this balance where uh it's it's a it's a decision that you that you're making during your day building and that you decide to commit to it. We're actually giving you a decision to make, not uh, forcing something upon you. All right. I, I'm not sure if, if that idea was, was even um, implemented in some other card games. I wasn't, well, I played um, the, the other card game I, was, I used to play is mm -hmm. Hearthstone. And I, I remember that after Gwent implemented Devotion, there were some cards appearing in Hearthstone that were using exactly the same idea. And I think that they obviously took it from from Gwent, I think, but I'm not sure. Maybe maybe you have some knowledge on, of that. Uh, I'm not sure either, but uh, to be honest, I kind of see devotion in general as deck building constraints. Hmm. So in the same line as uh, you know, Reno deck, Highlander decks uh, in in Gwent and in Earthstone. Yeah. So um, and like. I think it's something that's very interesting, and yeah, something that would be interesting to develop. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. And you know, sp speaking of that, that, that's that's more follow up because y there are newer cards with devotion on them, but there is no newer cards. I mean, post Way of the Witch cards with adrenaline. Is the is is the you know the keyword adrenaline going to appear on newer cards as well, or do you think this was just a one-time thing? We just don't know yet. Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, but honestly, I think it, it's just a matter of it can like when when you're working on an expansion and uh, you have this new shiny keyword, uh, you think really hard about ways to include this. Uh, to the point where sometimes you're, you're scared that it feels forced. Um, 
when you go work on something else, you don't necessarily have the same incentive anymore. And now it's just another tool in your toolbox that you can pull to solve specific problems. So uh, I, I don't think we have any limitation, like, oh, no, we're not going to be printing any adrenaline card because uh, now is not the time. It's more like uh, it didn't necessarily came up in our design discussions and didn't necessarily came up as a solution for uh, for a problem that we might have had. Yeah, that's 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 a very uh, good answer. I mean, I, I I love all these things, you know, all these six small things like armor, provisions, points, adrenaline. There's just so many ways to balance cars right now, especially when you just, when you just compare it to let's say beta. And, and to be fair, sometimes we're like, oh, we haven't been using that keyword in a while because like uh, it didn't came up and like we weren't we weren't necessarily thinking about it. And we're like, hey, it would be cool if we could kind of do something about this. I think it was part of the process that went into doing uh, names. That uh, dwarf leader card. Sorry, uh, Brewer. Brewer. Yeah, yeah. Um, we like dwarves play kind of play with armor. We wanted to develop on this, and so uh, giving it barricade uh, uh, was felt 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 great. All right, I think I think that's gonna be it when it comes to questions. So let's move to the shameless plug section. So uh, Jean, if our viewers would like to chat with you, or if they would act, like to ask questions, or maybe you know, pick up on your mind, uh, where can they do so? Uh, Twitter is definitely the best place to reach out to me. Uh, now I'm fairly recent to Twitter, so I need to look up what my username is. It's at uh, Okier Jean. Okier. Uh, yeah, it's probably going to be difficult to spell. <laughs> Don't worry, it's in the chat, guys. You can find it. All right. Um, yeah, it's probably the most, the easiest way uh, to reach out to me. And yeah. All right, uh, Hesser. Hey guys, as usual, you can find me on Twitch mainly, on Twitter as well. Twitch would be Hesser Tavern, just exactly as the name you can see below. Uh, and Twitter the same. Um, pretty active again. <laughs> it's like going into, you know, some small cycles for me right now. But I'm, I'm active, I'm streaming, I'm uh, tweeting, I have Instagram as well. You can find it on my Twitch. So whenever you feel like you can jump onto the stream and let's let's discuss Gwent and some other stuff as well. All right. Uh, I'm not going to promote my own content because you are already on my channel. But I'm just going to remind you guys that uh, if you'd like to stay in touch with the podcast, we have a Twitter at Novigrad Podcast and that this episode is going to be uploaded on YouTube, Spotify, and numerous other platforms either to later today or tomorrow. And with that being said, Jean, thank you for all your answers. A very eye-opening interview. Because we always think about Gwen from the player perspective. And it's just so refreshing to see or to hear about the other perspectives as well. And yeah, uh, Hesser, thanks for uh, you know running the show with me as always. 
It's great to be back, isn't it? It is. It is, my man. Okay, and chat, as always, thank you guys for uh, staying with us, asking all these amazing questions. And yeah, we'll thank see you guys. guys later. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday and have a good week. See you, everyone.